Hey there, fellow entrepreneurs. If you're tired of complicated domain management, I've got the solution for you, Hover.com. Hover makes registering and managing domains a breeze. Their clean interface and hassle-free experience will save you time and frustration. No upsells, no hidden fees, just straightforward domain services. Plus, Hover offers top-notch customer support. Make your life easier. Head over to foxcitiesmm.com hover and simplify your domain journey today. You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, what do you got for us today? Well, you know, we're going to be going a little bit outside of the Fox Cities this time. There is, there All is... the way up to Duluth, Minnesota? No, 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 no not quite that far. <laughs> We're going to go to Stevens Point. Oh, that's not bad. No, you know, I mean, it's not Fox Cities and, uh, you know, I, I hopefully nobody gets too mad about that. But I figure anywhere in like the northeast Wisconsin region, hey, we're fine, right? <laughs> we got that. We got murdered. So at least we got that. If, hey. we, if we don't have the Fox Cities, we at least got the murder. And if you are offended by the fact that we go to Stevens Point, just turn this episode off and come back for the next one, and I'm sure it'll be back in the Fox City. No, so. no it won't. It won't. No. I'll tell, I'll tell you more at the end, but no, it won't. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what happens in Stevens Point? All right, so we're going to start with a guy named Mark LaRoe. Okay. And I may be saying that wrong, because I always think say things wrong, but we're going to call him LaRoe, or Mark. Most call him Mark here. Can I can I guess at the first line of your your notes there? Sure. Mark LaRoe was born in Kakana, Wisconsin. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> he was born. I actually don't know where he was born. Born. Oh. But he was he was born. <laughs> he was definitely born. Okay. Yeah, he was born uh, around Christmas in 1948. His parents were Eugene and Mary. Eugene had been a career navy man. And while in the Navy, he specialized in electronics. Since retiring from the Navy, he worked for the telephone company. Did you say what time, what era this is in? Well, he, so Mark is born in 48. Okay. And now we're going to be up to 1965. Mark is now 16 years old. He's apprehended by the Wapaka County Sheriff and returned to the custody of the local jail. He is accused of a reckless use of weapons because he pointed a forty-five caliber pistol at another man. Well, I guess at a man, because Mark's not a man. It's not <laughs> another man. And he forced the man to drive himself and a friend from Amherst, Wisconsin, which is near Stevens Point, to Chicago. That's when, quite a drive. It is. When they stopped for gas, Mark gave the pistol to his friend and went into the gas station. The man scuffled with the other boy and succeeded in grabbing the boy and getting the weapon away from him. When Mark returned, he picked up a shovel and threatened to strike the man. Uh, but it didn't really work because the other man now had the gun. <laughs> Gas station attendant also came out and was able to hold Mark. And the boys were turned over to the sheriff and they were in some serious trouble. Upon questioning the boys, authorities learned they had committed at least 21 burglaries Holy cow. of homes, cottages, 
and a store in the past year. During his investigation, the sheriff went to the house to recover some of the stolen property. He went out to the garage with Mark's mother, and he found some of the stolen property in the garage. Mark's mother apparently said to the sheriff, Look what he does. He puts it in a place where he knows I can find it, just so he can hurt me. He always does it. He will do something just to hurt me. Wow, Mom. Mark, Mark, really, Mark making... really disappointing his mother here. Yeah, and, and Mom is just, like, really quick to point out, like, how, oh, this is just so sad for me. My kid just does this just to hurt me. Yes. <laughs> While at the house, the sheriff also finds a manifesto that's written by Mark. <laughs> it's called The Epitaph of an Unwanted Child. The sheriff brings it to the county nurse who reads it, and she says, whoever wrote this has serious psychiatric problems. (laughs) This is somebody who gets into a lot of trouble with his mother. She said that whoever wrote this was an angry person and needed help, and that he would probably be very quiet most of the time, and then at other times he would probably be angry and want to destroy anyone and anything. That was her psychiatric evaluation of this, <laughs> uh, which I would love to read this. I have not seen it. I don't know if it still exists, but I would love to see this yeah, document. Yeah, that would be very cool. I wonder if it was ever publicly released. Probably would they? It's got to be in a court record somewhere. Yeah, I suppose, because they probably used it as evidence. Right? Yeah. All right. So we've got teenage Mark, and he is a burglar. He holds people at gunpoint to drive him places. He's just kind of a troublemaker. November 8th, 1967. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. The sheriff receives a call that the LaRoe residence is burning. It's thought that Eugene and Mary had died in the fire. These are Mark's parents. Okay. The sheriff called the coroner, and they went to the residence. When they arrived there, they discovered that the house had burned down burned so much that it had collapsed into the basement. They were informed that the two LaRoe children, Mark, who was now 18, and his sister Jeanette, who was 15, were at the home of another couple, who were friends of the family, two miles away. The sheriff learned that the children, upon discovering the fire, had gone to this residence for help and to spread news to uh, the fire department, the police, and so on. After viewing the fire... The sheriff in the corner went to the house and on the way noticed that the children had passed nine other farmhouses on their way to this other residence. They thought this was kind of strange that they went to, even though it was somebody they knew, Mm -hmm. they thought it was strange that they passed nine other houses when their house was on fire. (laughs) They thought, you know, maybe you could have just stopped somebody (laughs) a little sooner. The sheriff asked to speak to the children. He wanted to speak to them separately. He first took Mark out to his car, and he advised him that he had constitutional rights and questioned him about the fire. Mark said that he and his parents and his sister had been home that evening. His parents went out for a little while to a venison feed. Not sure what a venison (laughs) feed is. I don't know if it's like a fish fry for deer or something. something. Yeah. Yeah. So he and Jeanette stayed home. The parents later returned. They all watched television until 10 p.m. Father went upstairs. His mother went upstairs. Jeanette was sleeping, and Mark also went to sleep. He said that he was awakened by Jeanette, who screamed that the house was on fire. He said the house was full of smoke, and the parents were trapped upstairs. He tried to get upstairs, but he couldn't because the smoke was so thick. So he yelled for his parents a few times, but 
They didn't say anything. By this time, Jeanette was hysterical, so he told her to grab some important papers and get out of the house. They then drove to their family friend. What papers could he possibly... Could a 18-year-old kid said, we need these papers, grab them before we get out of the burning house? I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> Sheriff next talked to Jeanette. She gave pretty much the same exact story uh, with the slight difference that she had been awakened by the dog rather than the smoke itself. The dog woke okay. her up and then she noticed the smoke. But basically the story was the same. Both the sheriff and the coroner thought that the story was believable, but it was a little strange because neither of the children smelt like smoke. Weird. Yeah. They also seemed very calm and composed for having just lost their house in a fire and having their parents die. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah. They noted that it was strange that they drove past so many houses, and they also thought it was strange that their stories were so similar. Not that they shouldn't be similar, but they were so similar that they seemed rehearsed. That was that was going to be one of my questions, was like, like it almost sounded too similar, but I don't know. How similar should a story be? I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the police that do this enough, like, can just hear a story and be like, yeah, that's... You guys are telling it too much alike for it to be real. You know what I mean? I guess it depends, like, you know, if they're using like, the exact phrases and stuff. Then yeah. it might be a little weird. But, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, if you're telling the truth, your story should be the same. It should be the same, but I think it's, you know, it's always perception is a little bit different. Right. So I I think if it's too much the same, it's like, okay, that's you guys would have noticed it in a different way in some way, I guess. Yeah, thought that was strange. And finally, he thought it was strange that they had time to collect some papers before getting out of the house, but they didn't have enough time to actually get their parents out of the house. That is strange as well. I would lo still love to know these what these papers <laughs> that yeah. were so important. The sheriff then said, you know, recover whatever bodies you can out of the debris, and two charred bodies were recovered from the basement. No autopsy was performed at the time, because of the difficulty the sheriff had experienced at the local level in getting them performed. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but that jumped out at me, because apparently the sheriff has asked in the past to get an autopsy done, and whoever does the autopsies is like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I don't, I would I, love to know more about that. I got a card that. game today, I can't do an autopsy. Yeah. <laughs> So apparently, I don't know if he even asked for one this time or if he was just like, I don't want to deal with, with that, that guy, guy again. <laughs> so no autopsies performed. Later in the day, the sheriff thinks about further questioning the children, but he decides, you know, we'll, we'll just let it go for now. And that's, you know, that's fine. They'll come back later. And after a couple of days, we'll talk to them again. Eugene and Mary were buried a couple of days later, visiting at the home of this family friend was some other people. This is now basically the new home of the kids. They're now living with the family friend. And some friends came up from Chicago, and they all kind of stayed there after the funeral, and they had an evening together. Jeanette, one of the one of the LaRoe kids, the younger one, was there with her best friend, Kathy. Jeanette and Kathy spent some time together talking after the funeral. Jeanette said she had something to tell, but she wanted Kathy to keep it a secret. She said, but if something happens to me, then you can tell other people. But don't tell anybody <laughs> if nothing happens to me, because it's a secret. She then told Kathy that her and Mark were home alone watching television the night of the fire. 
when Mark suggested that they should get rid of their parents by poisoning them. Jeanette told Mark to shut up, but he persisted. After the parents had gone to sleep, Jeanette also went to sleep. She was awakened when she heard gunshots. Jeanette stayed in bed until Mark came into her bedroom and told her that he had shot their parents and that she should get packed. She said that at the time she was afraid of him. Mark then went upstairs and started the fire in the parents' bedroom with kerosene. They then went to their friend's house. Jeanette also told Kathy that before and after the funeral, Mark had bragged to Jeanette that he had gotten away with the perfect crime. Wow. Except for the fact that it, there is an eyewitness to it. Wow, well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> At first, Kathy didn't tell anybody what Jeanette told her. But then they returned to their home in Chicago. And in fact, they didn't live in Chicago. They lived in Carpentersville. But okay. I'm saying Chicago because nobody here is going to know where Carpentersville <laughs> is. is. Except me and you, I guess. I Well, you and I know because we know where the thrift shops are in Carpentersville. <laughs> but, but other people, for the sake of other people, it's a suburb of Chicago. Chicago, yeah. And when she gets back, she tells her parents, and her parents are like, oh, <laughs> well, that's not good. So they call up the family friend who lives in the Stevens Point area, and they say, hey, uh, we're actually going to come back. We'll be back in a day or two. Um, is that cool? Can we come up? And they're like, yeah, 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 of course. You're welcome anytime. So they come back up. They don't say over the phone why. Mm-hmm. They come back up. And when they get there, they make sure that Mark and Jeanette are not around. And they tell the family friends about the story that they heard. And they said, oh. And the family friend then goes to the coroner and talks to the coroner. And he's like, yeah, we totally didn't do an autopsy on them (laughs) or anything. Um, So, you know, it's possible. We didn't really look for bullet holes or anything like that. So they're like, oh, okay. It's kind of scary. And you think about it, the fact that there was no autopsy done, that kid got, like, almost got really, really lucky. Definitely. You know? Definitely. Because if they would have done an autopsy, they would have, without a doubt, found the bullet holes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now they set up this trap where the family friends invite Mark over for dinner. Now, Jeanette lives with the family friends. Mark has his own apartment in Stevens Point. They invite him over for dinner, and they're going to kind of spring this trap on him. Hey, let's see if we can get him to talk about some stuff. So they do that. But after further consideration, they're like, maybe that's a bad idea. Because what if we do this, he freaks out, and then he shoots us. (laughs) So after inviting him to dinner, they then alert the sheriff, and they tell the sheriff the story. And the sheriff's like, okay, so now i got to get to the apartment before he leaves the apartment to go to the dinner. (laughs) (laughs) To pick him up, or... Well, because because if he if if he gets to the dinner first, maybe he'll freak out no, and, and shoot the people. Them. So if he gets arrested before he goes to the dinner, there's then no he won't chance for him people. to shoot anybody. Right. Whether he would or not, I don't know. But they suddenly got really paranoid that maybe maybe jumping on him is not a wise <laughs> idea. Because this guy just allegedly killed his parents. Like, dude's nuts. So anyway, they call they call it up the sheriff. The sheriff's like, all right. Uh, I'm totally on this. So the sheriff 
goes, uh, he radios his headquarters. He says, I need some additional officers. He goes, I'll take the lead on this, but I need some backup just in case. Uh, he gets a hold of them. He also contacts the district attorney and the county judge just in case he needs search warrants or anything like that. So everybody kind of knows what's up. He then heads to the apartment. So sheriff, the sheriff gets to Mark's apartment, which was at 808 Clark Street in Stevens Point. I don't know where that is, but if you live in Stevens Point, it's 808 Clark Street. Maybe somebody lives in a murderer's apartment. <laughs> he arrives at the scene. He notices the light is on. So he knocks on the door. And his roommate answers. His roommate's name is Dave. Dave says, hey, what's up? And the sheriff's like, hey, do you know who I am? And Dave's like, yeah, duh, you're like the sheriff. Everybody knows who the sheriff is. <laughs> and the sheriff's like, hey, is Mark home? And Dave says, yeah, Mark's here. And he goes, he's back in his bedroom, like over there, outside the apartment. The sheriff said, is it is it cool if I come in? And Dave said, yeah, I don't, I don't know shit. shit. <laughs> yeah, like, like, whatever, come on in. <laughs> so Dave, Dave is not not a good friend here because <laughs> he's totally letting the sheriff in. But uh, you know, I, I'm not, but, I'm not but, blaming the guy. But but I'm going to assume that Dave didn't know that Mark shot his parents. Dave, or Dave, let, might, Dave might not know. I don't yeah. know what he did or didn't know. But it will. Yeah, you're right. Let's assume that he didn't know that why the sheriff wanted to talk to Mark. And, and I'm I'm saying that he shot his parents only because I assume that's where we're going. But it is. We shouldn't. Okay. It is. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're jumping ahead, but I think everybody kind of knows where the story <laughs> yeah. is at this point. So the sheriff goes over to the bedroom, opens the bedroom door, and finds Mark and a young lady standing in the room, both completely naked. <laughs> nice. They're they're placed under arrest. Mark is informed that he's being arrested for the murder of his parents. And then he informs the young lady that she is being arrested for lewd and lascivious behavior, which that I'm pretty confident is going to get tossed out. I never heard what happened because they didn't report the name of the lady. But I don't think you can get in trouble for lewd and lascivious behavior in your own bedroom. <laughs> pretty sure that's not a thing. I'm guessing that got dropped. They were instructed to put their clothes on. And while they were doing that, the sheriff read them their rights. He then said, Hey, uh, hey, Mark, you don't happen to have any guns in this room, do you? <laughs> and Mark's like, matter of fact, I do. <laughs> Just to me. He's like, they're over there under those pillows. And so the sheriff lifts up a couple of pillows and underneath he does find a twenty-five caliber pistol, which later after the ballistics test is run on them, turns out, sure enough, to be the gun that fired the bullets that were found in the head of his parents. So they did go back to, to the body? At this, at this point, they did. At this okay. point, they didn't do an autopsy originally, but they end up exhuming the bodies and, and running an autopsy. And there's there's very little in the autopsy because, I mean, they're completely burned. But this is the thing. Now, had he poisoned his parents, and I'm not giving anybody any suggestions <laughs> here, had he poisoned his parents and they burned up, there would have been there'd no, be no evidence, evidence whatsoever. But if you shoot them in the head, no matter how burned they are, there's still bullets Let's in the see. head. Yeah. So it's fairly obvious at that point that they're shot in the head. So but his plan didn't go. He had a good idea, but didn't quite deliver on it the way he should have. So. Yeah. So, of course, now he's going to go to trial. They assemble a jury pool and they find out that they have to get a bigger jury pool than usual because apparently 
The Leroux family is apparently very well known. Of the first 24 people that were called to be part of the jury, five of them said they actually knew Mark personally. Three others said that they had already formed an opinion based on the news coverage. So it took them a, a multiple tries for they to get enough people. But they finally got nine men and three women on the jury, and they were sequestered in the Whiting Motor Hotel. No jury had been sequestered in the county for almost 10 years. And that was when an Iranian student was accused of killing a man with a broken beer glass during wow. a bar fight. Which maybe, if anybody cares, maybe someday we'll talk about that story. <laughs> if you want to hear the story of the Iranian student <laughs> with the broken beer glass in a bar fight. The motive was suggested to be greed. They had a $50,000 insurance policy. And Mark really wanted that $50,000. Really? And that was going to be, I guess this kind of moves into a question I asked. So there's no evidence. like, like So he had a manifesto about not... Something about with his parents. Yeah, I mean, but I don't there, know what was in it, but based on the title, apparently he felt that his parents didn't want him. And but there, nothing, nothing that's ever been reported suggests that the parents really were bad parents or anything like that. That they were neglecting him or anything. It was not really. We'll touch on that in a moment, but not really. But yes, this is apparent. This is the alleged motive, and you don't need a motive. I mean, to prove somebody killed someone. But it's nice to kind of get an idea of where they're coming from. And uh, granted, this is this is the 1960s. So, you know, money went a little further then. $50,000 is not that much. <laughs> I mean, he's not going to live up. <laughs> they go to trial. And who's the star witness at the trial? It's his sister. Ooh. Jeanette claimed that Mark had repeatedly bragged of committing the perfect crime. He was often in trouble and did not get along with his father. Mark lived in an apartment in Stevens Point where he worked as an encyclopedia salesman. <laughs> this is an awesome job. Yes. She said that Mark shot their parents because they had, quote, mistreated him while he had done time in prison for those earlier burglaries. They did not send him enough money while he was a junior college in Colorado, where, coincidentally, he studied gunsmithing. As the house burned from kerosene, they gathered up cash, guns, papers, a radio, a pool cue, a Maltese cross, which I'm not really sure what that is, and Mark's collection of German swastikas. They also got the family dog out of the house, so that was nice. But the parents didn't care about Yeah. It. Well, I guess they were probably already dead, though. Right. Yeah. The defense attorney got Jeanette to admit that she occasionally also fought with her parents. They were very strict with her about dating boys. And she had once thought about running away to join the hippies in San Francisco. Alice LaRoe, who was an older sister who did not live with the family. Mm. She was old enough. She had moved out. She testified that their mother had a temper. And on one occasion, she saw her hit Mark with a tree branch. But for the most part, everybody got along. She did say that when she was 17, she ran away to San Francisco <laughs> to be with, with the, the hippies. <laughs> but she came back. At age 18, she moved out a second time where she went to work as a dancer in Chicago. I don't know if she was really a dancer. Take that however you want. At trial, the murder weapon was admitted into evidence. It was noted that there were no fingerprints on the gun. Mark used this 
to say that it was actually his sister Jeanette who was the killer. Wow. He said there were no fingerprints on the gun because Jeanette was the killer and he took the gun away from her afterwards and wiped it clean in order to protect her. He then also admitted to setting the fire because he didn't want his sister to get in a get a bad name in the newspapers for killing the parents. So he thought if he covered it up with a fire, that would protect her. He wow. said he said that she killed her parents because they would often fight about the fact that she was smoking, and they didn't like that. He said that he even tried to save his father, but when he ran up to the bedroom after hearing the shots, all he could see was blood spurting from his father's head and decided that it was too late. That's reasonable, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The defense also called the local priest. The priest said that it's true that Jeanette sometimes had problems. He recalled on one occasion where she went on a camping trip, and the camping trip had both boys and girls, and he thought this was very inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> like what is this, what does that have to do with anything nothing at all but serious, okay. but dead serious they called a priest and and he testified that she was a bad girl because she would go camping with boys so just putting that out there i know it sounds incredibly stupid now but apparently in the 60s you know that would be a big scandal <laughs> yeah, yeah well ultimately the jury returns two guilty verdicts of first degree murder and Mark is sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment by the judge. The sentence was to be served consecutively, which means one after the other. Mark still maintained his innocence. We're all up to the... He's now off to prison. There's a little more to the story, but... But have you got anything at this point? Well, the biggest question I would have is, is he still alive? No. Okay, he's not still alive. And I guess, do you have anything that... I mean... I personally, listening to the story, don't believe that his claim that the sister shot him mm -hmm. or the sister was actually the shooter. I don't believe that's really real. Right. But did they present any evidence to show that that couldn't have happened? Because that certainly could be the scenario. It's not a bad defense. I think I think basically what happens is it comes down to this. The parents are shot and they're burned. And they know for a fact that the only two people in the house are Jeanette and Mark. Okay. So it's one or the other. Right. I think it comes down to it being Mark, one, because he's got a bad history. But two, because Jeanette went and told her friend after the fact. Yeah. Whereas if Jeanette had been the killer, <laughs> and if she was smart, she wouldn't have told anybody. She would have said, like, nope, they're buried. I guess we got away with it. Yeah. Or or she would have gone straight to the cops and said it was right. him to try and, you know, spin it around on him. I mean, you're yeah. right. From from what I was able to read, based just on the physical evidence, it honestly could have been either one. Um, but I'm assuming that at trial, it came down against him because she was the one who came forward. And And the other part of it was, too, he did have possession of the gun. Right, that's, yeah, that's, that's probably, a, not probably another big part of it. Too. Right, right. Which, which you killed your parents with a gun. Why would you not get rid of the gun? It's a good point. Yeah, you know, it's a good point. I'm I mean, not a mass. I'm, not, you, I'm yeah. not a master criminal, but I even know that. Like, You're right. like, 
keeping a gun that I killed somebody with, probably not the best option. You're absolutely right. Even though he wiped it clean, if he would have got rid of it, they could not say what gun mm. killed the parent. You're right. Anything you can do to break up the, the, the links back to you, good idea. Yeah. Not that I'm advocating <laughs> or suggesting how you would do this, but you're right. All right, so what's the rest of the story? Okay. So he's in prison for these two life terms. A few years after he's in prison, the governor reduces his sentence from two consecutive life terms down to two concurrent life terms, which means he's serving them at the exact same time. Okay. And you would say, well, what difference does that make? Well, he's, I mean, either, he's either serving life followed by life, or he's serving two life terms. But which it is doesn't. Still life. But doesn't life have a, a year length on it? It does. Okay. It does. That's what I thought. I mean, life life can be life. I mean, that's literally what it means. But it but it matters when you're eligible for parole. Oh, okay. If if they had been served one after the other, he wouldn't have been eligible for parole until significantly later because he'd have to serve the minimum of the first sentence before the second one even started. But by serving them at the same time, as soon as one of them is eligible, they're both, both eligible. eligible. He actually becomes eligible about 11 years earlier than he otherwise would have been. And once you're eligible for parole, at least back at this time, I don't know if this is still true, back in this time, what you would do is you would get transferred. So you start out, if you're a murderer, you're usually in Wapan. Okay. Because Wapan is the nasty prison. That's the big bad prison in Wisconsin. That's where the worst people go. But if you're up for parole... At least in this time, you didn't stay in Wapan anymore. They sent you to a medium security prison because, hey, you know, we'll lighten up on you a little bit. You're probably getting out in a couple of years. So they move him to a lighter security prison in Fox Lake. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with Fox Lake prison. Isn't Fox Lake prison now the one that's all women? I don't know about that. I know that the women's prison is Taichita. I don't know. About, is that in Fox Lake? No. Okay. Taichita is near Fond du Lac. Um, Fox Lake is it's actually not that far from Wapan. It's where it's where our friend Jason used to work. Oh, okay. He worked in Fox Lake. Okay, gotcha. Um, which really stunk because he had to drive like an hour and a half to work every day. <laughs> but that's a, that's a whole other story. Anyway, so he goes there. What do you suppose happens at this point? He gets killed. I don't know. No, he doesn't get killed. Good guess, but no. Uh, so he gets transferred. Um, he gets parole. Nope. Okay. He kills somebody in prison. Nope. All right, you just got to tell me because I have no idea. Okay. So they move him from this maximum security prison to this lighter security prison. But we already know this guy's nuts, right? So he tries to escape. He tries oh. to escape. And he succeeds. Really? Yes. <laughs> Good on him. So he's at Fox Lake Prison, and one day he's working outside on some sort of a plumbing problem. I don't really know what. But it's him and another guy, and a guard is watching over them, you know, with a rifle or whatever. And him and the other guy somehow get the better of the guard, tie him up, take the rifle or shotgun, whatever it is that he has, Get in the prison truck and drive off. <laughs> okay. So they're gone. They drop off the prison truck, you know, a few miles away where they steal a second car. <laughs> and they get even further still. 
And at that point, they steal a third car. Wow. And, they, and they go separate at this point. The guy he's with ends up getting caught within a matter of two days. And this other guy, I mean, it's my opinion, but kind of dumb. Okay. Because he's escaped from prison. His sentence before escaping from prison was three years. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Now, I don't know this, but I'm willing to bet that when you've been a prison escapee, you probably get some serious time. (laughs) You do. So he's not getting out in three years anymore. (laughs) Whereas if you got life in prison, I mean, I'm not going to fault the guy for trying to escape. Escape. So this guy's got in a couple days, but not Mark. Mark gets away and he actually stays out for almost a whole year. He gets all the way down to Illinois, uh, down to Winthrop Harbor, which for people who don't know, it's basically like just the other side of like Kenosha. Okay. It's like in the Waukegan area where he's caught. He was actually a suspect in a string of armed robberies, which is how he gets caught. And he's held in jail. Turns out he's not actually not the guy committing the armed robberies. <laughs> but but once uh, he's in the jail and, you know, they run his prints and everything, it's like, they, oh, oh, oh. Well, we stumbled onto something here, huh? Escaped murderer. <laughs> hmm. So he ends up going back to the prison. There's still one tiny more piece. But if you got anything, stop me now. No, I'll go for it. And- okay. I know this is probably one of our longer episodes, but really dragging this story out here. He goes back to prison. Believe it or not, even though he's got two life sentences and a prison Super escape, he s- does actually get parole. Holy crap. How long does it take him to get parole? A little while. Yeah. I mean, he gets some additional. He doesn't get to get out like the next year. But he gets, But he still, they still give him parole. He gets out. He takes up work as a nurse at the Milwaukee County Mental Health Facility. He there becomes a very well-respected nurse where it's said that he is compassionate for people with mental illness and people who have experienced problems with drugs and alcohol. He also, in his spare time, would carve birds, and he loved animals, especially dogs. He also got married. He didn't have any kids or anything, but he did end up getting married and living out his life working as a professional in a mental health nursing facility. So I, I don't know. I don't know the guy personally, but... Sounds like he, he turned it around a little bit and went from yeah, so he never having problems to helping people with problems. So he never really had... Uh, I'm, I'm waiting for the ball to drop where he does something else. Nope. And that's strange because, I mean, the early on him, I mean, sounds completely insane. Right. And and then he comes out and just lives a normal life. That's yep. pretty impressive. He has, it sounds like he has a really rough teenage years and doesn't adjust well to prison but once he's out he's a, a i guess i mean i don't know but apparently he apparently he, do, he did well lesson. enough that he was able to go to nursing school and everything so yeah and he learned his lesson from and he it. learned his lesson he did he did end up dying relatively young he only made it to 64 but but yeah all in all i guess turned out okay i think it'd be really weird to like get married and be like hey uh just so you know, I killed my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, 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 I don't know how you how you date. How, how do you have the icebreaker of that? Like, yeah. like it's it almost feels like something you have to share with the other person, right? right? No, but, no, it totally does. I mean, I mean, how long can you date somebody before you have to be like, just so you know, maybe it I was, killed my parents. Maybe it was one of those uh, jail, 
you know, prison romance things. Maybe. You know, so yeah. so maybe she was fully aware of his past it's just, from the that, get-go. That's the thing that really catches me about that. I'm like, not that people who have murdered can't find relationships, you know, cause people grow up and whatever. But killing your own parents is pretty bad. I can't believe... By... Just a, out of curiosity, and you probably don't know this, but while you were doing this, did you, like, just discover, I'm curious, how many people in the state of Wisconsin have broken out of prison? You know? I don't know. But like, I assume this is a very uncommon thing to happen, so... Well, you would, you would think that, but I don't know if you remember, we did an episode a long time back now. On, on Wenzel Cabot. I don't know if that name even rings a bell. It's been so no, long. it doesn't. It's a Kakana story. Okay, of course <laughs> it is, because they're all Kakana stories, yeah. except this one. <laughs> but he, he broke out of Wapan twice. Wow. They caught him, and he it, broke it, out again. And he broke out of Wapan, which is, yeah. should be the higher security prison, Yeah, he manufactured right? a ladder, and, and nobody caught him making this ladder. <laughs> and he actually put the ladder up against the prison walls and got out. So he just walked out one day with a ladder in his hand and climbed up the prison yeah, wall. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's definitely, like, I think it's less rare than you would expect for people to escape prison. And I wonder if, like, back in the 60s, maybe it was a fairly common thing. Like, I assume it's not common now. I wouldn't think so. But... But 60s and prior, maybe and maybe it is still semi-common and we just never hear about it. I mean, I'm sure it happens. happens but, right. it, yeah, it is weird. Like, I, I don't think it's common, but I've seen it a few times. And really, it's a prison. People shouldn't be getting <laughs> out. out. <Yeah>. <laughs> like, that's, that's the one job you have, prison, is to keep people in there. And, oh... One of the things I was confused on when you were talking about it, so they were doing some sort of plumbing project. Was mm -hmm. it, would they outside of the yeah, prison? Yeah, yeah, Okay. Yes. Uh, if, sorry if that wasn't clear. Yes, they were out in the, outside of the building, and uh, I, I have no idea what it is they were fixing or why they had the inmates doing it. But, and, they, but they had these two guys working on the plumbing outside. And now the, the thing I find really interesting about that is, and maybe, maybe this is something I misunderstood too, but you have two prisoners outside of the prison. Yeah. Why do you only have one guard? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a minimum security prison. But again, yeah, you're right. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, like, even if you have one person outside of the prison, you should still have two guards with them, right? <laughs> that That's a reasonable point. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. Just in case one of them gets overpowered or something, then there's another one to back them up. I, you know, I can't disagree with you. Yeah, I don't know. You know, like when cops pull over drunk drivers, they have to call a second oh. person in. Well, I mean, yeah, when you so, put it like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so if you're a prison guard, you should always have a partner with you, especially when you're outside of the prison. Sometimes even speeding, you'll get a second officer. So no, you're right. Like definitely. Put it put it in that context. Yeah, it seems a little understaffed. Yeah, <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to say was too was with so the other guy that broke out. I almost wonder because you're right. Like you have a three year sentence. Why in God's name would you ever try to know. break out? And do you think like what was it, Mark? Is Mark, his, sure. yeah, Mark. Do you think Mark did something? 
And then this guy's just kind of like, oh, crap, we're not supposed to, you know, he's doing this. And yeah. then he, now he has to make that decision, like, am I going to go? Am I going to stay? What do right. I do? Right. And I don't and I don't know the details of of how that all played out. But I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if if this guy, the the second guy, if he didn't even know this was going to happen. Happened. Yeah. Like and I, then he's in the moment where he's like, either I'm now going to run or i'm gonna report this and in the moment he's like i'm gonna run yeah which is the wrong choice but you know i i can see why you might choose that when the other guy is now holding a shotgun and be like we're getting out of here yeah i like (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's almost too tempting to not pass up yeah but then i just can't see that person being pre premeditated in their mind that i'm gonna break out of prison yeah, you know, unless something was going on that he just felt well, like he yeah. really needed to get. And out. it was, and it was lucky for Mark. I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but the other guy, the other guy's name is Chris. the The Chris guy is in prison for car theft. I don't know if I mentioned that. Oh, or not. so he was the perfect person for him to have because they could just right. go along and steal cars. Right. So what I'm saying, like they they drove a few miles and they stole other cars. This is a guy who he's in prison because he knows how to hotwire cars. So that's the guy you want. Yeah. Because did, did Mark know how to steal a car? I don't I know. I don't know. Yeah. That, that's a very good point. That's interesting. And that makes you think, almost seems to suggest, could it have been premeditated? And somehow he picked this guy yeah, I don't know. as the right person. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah. Well, needless to say, another very, very interesting story. Something yes. that I don't expect to ever hear. So no. prison breaks. And prison I mean, break. I mean... You people out there that are listening to this podcast, you are blessed because these are some good stories yeah. that nobody ever gets to hear. Well, I left out the most important part of the story, actually, now that I think about it. Oh, what is the most important? Oh, between, between being convicted and going to prison, he tattooed the entire blueprints of the prison on his body. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> And changed his name to Michael Schofield? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did that. Uh, and if anybody doesn't understand that reference, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> no, he did, he did not do that. And he's not really dead. He's actually in Panama right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> Bad joke. Yeah. Bad joke. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap another one of these episodes up. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. If you haven't already, start listening to Milwaukee Mafia. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I feel inclined to mention that if you don't listen to Milwaukee Mafia, Milwaukee Mafia now has its own craft beer. And Ooh. well, not our its own craft beer, but a craft beer shared across five different podcasts or so. But if you're in the Appleton area, go to Fleischman's Brewing. It came out on February 10th. Pick up a six pack, and you'll have a cool looking thing that, if you look at real small, you can see the Milwaukee <laughs> Mafia logo it's on. Not it. that small. <laughs> so they did all we right. haven't we haven't really seen it yet, so yeah. we don't know. But it's got a. They had to kind of fill in. It looked good in the mock-up. Yeah, and it they had to fill in the artwork, and we were blessed because they didn't have enough podcast artwork to to create the full image. So like they took all Milwaukee Mafia images and filled in the le- remaining holes. Yeah. So if you look at it, you'll see that there's a ton of Milwaukee Mafia m- logos, and then and then it's very nice. So well, and I know we're already like way over our usual time, but I'm gonna also add. 
um, we're not coming back to the Fox Cities because the next two episodes, the next two episodes are Sheboygan stories. Oh, well, Sheboygan's close, too. Yeah, so. because by the time people hear this, I'm sorry that we couldn't do it earlier, but by the time people hear this, I'll have had a presentation in Sheboygan. I think it's actually in Sheboygan Falls, but regardless. So for those who cannot attend, and at this point I can't even tell you to attend because you would have missed it, <laughs> but for those who, who can't attend, um, the notes will be turned into podcast episodes. So you still get to hear the stories, even though you're not there. Super. Well, we're excited for those, and we will be back in two weeks, whenever that two weeks is. Not sure. I think it's like April at this point, right? Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, all right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you in two weeks. Have a good night. Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem.